I will never again take for granted getting to preach with people. That's a, a wonderful thing. And uh, for those of you online, we're eager to get you back and hopefully see you very soon. Turn with me to John chapter 21. John 21, and as we have seen, John 21 provides for us a capper to John's gospel. Really some great preparation for the coming church of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2. Basically one page turn away. And because it's so pertinent to the church, we've used John 21 to consider some reasons to love your church. And we've said we love your church for the beloved sheep, love your church for the faithful shepherds, love your church for your life purpose. And today, it's appropriate that we should end on our Savior. Love your church for your worthy master, for your worthy master, Jesus Christ. The clear, central focus of John's gospel and now functioning as the head, the master, the Lord of the church. And the logic is very simple. If you love Christ more, you ought to love his bride, the church, all the more as well. And so now we come not only to the end of this series, Love Your Church, we also come to the end of John's gospel. And appropriately, it ends focused upon Christ, our master. And so we're now in John 21, the last two verses, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness. This is John, the apostle. And as a witness, he says that the world itself couldn't contain all that Jesus did. That's a way of saying the libraries of the world, the internet, couldn't contain all that Jesus has done. And so because of that fact, and because that's true, John wrote for us an inspired, succinct summary, a focused summary inspired by the Holy Spirit to bring the reader to saving faith in Christ. And so that's John's strategy for his gospel, and he gives us his strategy at the end of chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And here's his purpose. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These, these things, these signs, the specific signs that John records so that the reader might believe. Now I think we need to remind ourselves at this point that the Gospel of John is a very Jewish book. And ironically, the chosen nation of Israel would sinfully reject her own Messiah, and in the sovereign plan of God, we see an age, the church age, in which we're in now, in which the new covenant, which is a very Jewish covenant, Jeremiah 31, is graciously extended now to all peoples, and we're thankful for that. But this isn't a surprise. This was God's plan all along in his covenant with Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that is Israel, and from this nation would then come blessing to all peoples, all the families of the earth. How is that possible? Through the Messiah who would come through the chosen nation of Israel. And so keeping in mind that John is a very Jewish book written to the Jew originally, What's the case that John's making? What's his point? What is he trying to prove in the Gospel of John? He's trying to prove that Jesus Christ is the chosen Messiah of the Old Testament. And everything hinges on that. And to prove this, John records signs, miracles, which Jesus performed. And most agree that in John there are seven major signs. Some make it eight, but we're going to do seven today. What is a sign? A sign is very simply a down payment. It's a pledge. It's a token. It's a sample of a manifestation of the glory of God. Remember in the days before COVID when places used to give out samples? What was that to do? It was to tell you there's a lot more like this. And that's what signs are. They're samples. The signs contain an implicit promise of much more to come. So, putting ourselves in the sandals of a Jew in the first century who comes upon the Gospel of John, what would he be thinking? This would be someone who has watched his beloved Jerusalem decimated and destroyed in AD 70 by the, by the Romans. 
This would be one who has seen organized Judaism completely disintegrate and one who has seen a political national Israel cease to exist. There's no home country. There's no home. There is no Israel. And so for the Jew reading John's gospel, what's your messianic hope from the Old Testament? What drives you to keep looking to Yahweh for hope? Well, one word summarizes this hope, and that word is kingdom. Kingdom. And in fact, we could summarize, just to help us understand to whom John is writing, we could summarize the Old Testament kingdom messianic hope in just a few statements. I'm just going to give you a few statements of what this hope of kingdom looks like. Here's the first statement. We'll call this celebrated union with God. Celebrated union with God. What the Jew is looking for in the future kingdom of Messiah is complete union and fidelity with God that's celebrated with joy and delight and happiness and and even feasting and banqueting. The Jew is also looking for global worship of Messiah. The global worship of Messiah. According to the Abrahamic covenant, someday all peoples will enjoy the blessing of what Genesis 17 calls the seed of Abraham, the one man who would come from Abraham to bless all peoples. That, of course, is Jesus Christ. The Jew would be looking for in this messianic kingdom eternal rest from sin. Eternal rest from sin and, by the way, from the effects of sin. That someday there will be no rebellion, no curse, no sin, no sickness, no disease, no sorrow, no pain, nor no death. In fact, the end of our Bible tells us no tears even. The Jew would be looking for in the, old, in the kingdom messianic time Lavish provision from God, lavish provision from God that every man and woman and family and clan and tribe would enjoy great abundance, great provision. Deuteronomy 28 lists what God has promised, blessed livestock, abundant food, abundant crops. In fact, Deuteronomy 28 verse 12 says, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens. The Jew is looking for In the Messianic kingdom, complete protection by God. Complete protection by God. Israel has been plagued by vicious enemies all her days. You think about this. A people, a miraculous people that has lasted 3,500 years and still exists. This is a miracle people and yet they have been pummeled by her enemies. But the hope of a Messianic kingdom is one of protection and rest from war. Deuteronomy 28.10 promises that all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. In the Messianic kingdom, the Jew is looking for spiritual unity with all. Spiritual unity with all. That no longer will there be the unbelievers mixed into the nation that now pervert her ways and lead people astray. All peoples will have faith in Messiah. All will serve him with delight. One more phrase that explains what the Jew is looking for in the Messianic kingdom. Face-to-face fellowship with Messiah. Face-to-face fellowship with Messiah. This is most delightful of all, that the Jew looks forward to being made worthy of the fellowship directly with the Messiah of God, to look face-to-face to the one who was sent by God. So just to help you understand the hope of the Jew who reads the Old Testament and who is reading the Gospel of John They're looking for celebrated union with God, global worship of Messiah, eternal rest from sin, lavish provision from God, complete protection by God, spiritual unity with all, and face-to-face fellowship with Messiah. Now, to our Christian ears, this sounds almost unspiritual, especially if you've grown up with or been taught doctrinal systems that tell you that anything material, anything physical, anything earthly is wrong and only the invisible is good. We're used to thinking in purely unseen spiritual terms, right? And for us as church-age Christians, the promises of our faith are intangible. They're ethereal in many ways. You can't see forgiveness. I've never held justification I haven't heard regeneration. We've never seen Christ. We've never seen heaven. And we tend to think heavenward, which is good. But for the faithful Jew, the promises of God are tied to life on earth. 
tied to a kingdom where Messiah is reigning on the earth, protection from enemies, peace in their land, abundance from God. They didn't separate, as we often do, the spiritual provision of God from the physical and material and earthly provision of God. It was all one for them. They looked forward to a kingdom of tranquility, to a kingdom of peace. Even to this day, how does one Jew greet another? Shalom, peace. It's a hope of the future. But now we get to the problem. How do you enter the Messianic kingdom? And that's what the Gospel of John is about. You can't have peace with God unless God has made peace with you by paying for your sins. God was very clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that merely your physical heritage as a Jew, your DNA, could not save you. And so the Jewish reader of John's Gospel needed to be convinced that to someday enter into the Messianic kingdom which would give celebrated union with God, global worship of Messiah, eternal rest from sin, lavish provision from God, complete protection by God, spiritual unity with all, and face-to-face fellowship with Messiah to enter into that glorious kingdom, he must believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He must believe that. And, as John says, by believing, they might have life in his name. And so in the Gospel of John... He sets out to prove that Jesus is, as he said in John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way to the Father. And so I want to revisit these seven signs to show you what John is conveying through them. And we're going to assign each one a theme that Jesus is demonstrating, a a salvation theme. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn to every one of them. I'll walk us through each sign and I'll give you the theme at the end of each sign, but how does one enter into life in Christ? How does one get into this future messianic kingdom? The first sign is found in John 2, and you recall that there is a wedding in the Galilean city of Cana. This is in the northern province of Galilee. The wedding was of a family member of Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there also, and Jesus and his disciples are invited This was an occasion of great joy and celebration. The bridegroom's friends would eventually bring the bride to the groom's house. Then there's a wedding supper. But depending on the means and the wealth of the husband, the bridegroom, the festivities could last anywhere from one to seven days. The groom's family was expected to have plenty of food and plenty of wine. To run out of wine was a major embarrassment. In fact, there's even ancient Records of lawsuits being filed because the family ran out of wine. Talk about getting mad when you didn't get something to drink. But this sets the stage for Jesus at his mother's request to do something impossible because the wine runs out. He requested that six stone jars be brought. Each of them would hold about 20 to 30 gallons of water. So this is a substantial uh, amount here, 120 to 180 gallons total There would be no mistaking the original contents of the jars because they were empty. Jesus, without touching them, asks one of the stewards, one of the servants rather, to fill the jars with water. The steward, the master of the feast, comes back and he tastes the water and he's amazed because the water has been turned to wine. He's amazed not only because it's been turned to wine, but this late in a wedding feast is usually when the cheap wine was brought out because nobody could tell the difference apparently at this time. But this was amazing and perfect and delightful. It was, after all, divine wine. What did this show? It showed Jesus as the creator who's able to take that which is insufficient water and transform it into something brand new and something glorious, something perfected. John 2.11 says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Jesus demonstrated taking what is old and making it new. Now, if you know your Bible, you know the Gospel of John. That's in John chapter 2. What happens next in John chapter 3? Jesus has a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is not of mankind. It's not human will or volition. 
Five verses later, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the first sign of water being turned to wine, what is the theme, the salvation theme that Jesus is demonstrating? We'll simply call it new birth. New birth. And if one wants to enter into the messianic kingdom of God, he must receive the new birth. He must be born again. He must be regenerated by the Spirit of God. And now, right off the bat, the assumption of the average Jew that being Jewish was sufficient for salvation is now decimated. Nicodemus, the lead teacher, the teacher of Israel, was told by Jesus that he had to be born again. He must receive the new birth that like water being transformed into wine, he must be transformed by the Spirit of God. And so Jesus has demonstrated the theme of new birth. The second sign found in John chapter 4, there was a certain official who had a son who was sick. This official lived in the neighboring city of Capernaum, still in the north. This is an official, meaning a royal official. He is part of the court of King Herod Antipas, the client king who served on Rome's behalf. He was over the province of Galilee. Therefore, this official was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. And so now the Jew, reading the Gospel of John, gets to John chapter 4. Goes, okay, what's Jesus going to do with a Gentile? The official heard that Jesus was near, about 18 miles away. And he came to see him. And twice he said to Jesus, please come to my house to heal my son. And Jesus refused. He wouldn't go. Instead, he said in John 4, verse 50, go, your son will live. And how did this Gentile respond? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The official is on his way back home. He meets his servants who are coming to him. And they told him the exact hour that his son was healed and that he figured out that it was exactly the same time that Jesus said, your son will live. And so he and his household all believed. What's the theme of this sign? Demonstrated faith. He had faith. He believed. To enter the messianic kingdom, not only must you receive the new birth, but you must come by faith, by faith alone. This man demonstrated faith by obeying Christ. He trusted what he could not see by virtue of the one who gave him the command. He trusted Christ. So far, Jesus has illustrated the themes of new birth and demonstrated faith. There's a third sign right in the very next chapter, John 5. And by the way, we should note that for the rest of John 5 through 12, there's a growing animosity and hostility between Jesus and the Jewish leadership of Israel. We come now to a Sabbath day during an unnamed feast. And you recall that the Sabbath day is a day of rest instituted by God. It was a remembrance of of God resting on the seventh day of creation, and it was also given as the sign, the symbol, really, of God's covenant with Israel. This covenant was a temporary covenant, now replaced in this age by the new covenant, making the Sabbath day not required at this time. But the Sabbath was given to Israel before they entered into the Promised Land, before they came to Canaan, and it was to begin to prepare them for a life of worship, prepare them for life in their new home. And you think about this, the Israelites had been working as slaves every day of their lives for generations, and now they had entered into covenant with God who rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and now he's instituting something that was very foreign to them, a day off, a day to rest, a day to worship. But by the time we come to Jesus' time, Sabbath was no longer a celebration as much as it was a burden. It went from being a sign of deliverance and freedom to, rig- to now just being a burden. In fact, the Jewish law, the oral tradition written down called the Mishnah, gave 39 different classifications of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath, including like carrying things. You couldn't even carry something. And so in John 5, the sign that Jesus is about to perform takes place on the Sabbath In Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, at the Pool of Bethesda, and all around the pool were a great number of disabled people, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And there among them 
is one man, an invalid, and he's been there for 38 years. 38 years. The sick and the infirm would gather around this pool because they had a superstitious belief that supposedly an angel would come and stir the waters, and whoever could get to the waters was supposed to be healed. And so Jesus sees this man. He fully knows the situation. Jesus goes to him. Jesus takes the initiative and says to him, Do you want to be healed? John 5, verse 6. But the man has no faith in Christ. Instead, his faith is in some superstitious power of the stirred water. And he says very pessimistically, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Jesus ignores the water. The water is irrelevant because Jesus had all the power. And he tells the paralyzed man, Take up your bed and walk. John 5, verse 9, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. But what's the problem here? He's carrying something. The man's healing was met with disdain by the religious official. They rebuked him for carrying his mat on the Sabbath, never mind that he'd been paralyzed for 38 years. Now, what's this man going to do? Any reasonable person reading John's gospel And certainly a Jew reading John's gospel would think, wow, this man is probably going to follow after Christ all of his days. He's going to be rejoicing in Christ and going after him. Not so fast. Jesus has been gracious. He's been compassionate. He's given him physical healing, no doubt, near the end of this man's life. But when the Jewish leaders told him that he was breaking their tradition by carrying his mat, he feared them and he blamed Jesus to avoid getting on their bad side. Providentially, according to the plan of Christ, Jesus runs into this man again. And does he say, hey, it's good to see you. How are your legs feeling? Hey, you look good. You know, it looks like you cleaned up. And what are you doing these days? Does he say anything like that? No. He says something that's chilling. He gives him a warning. John 5, 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Worse, what could be worse than having been paralyzed for 38 years? There's only one thing worse, eternal judgment for your sin. Jesus, by the way, wasn't saying that the man was sick because he was sinned. Jesus was confronting the man because he was unrepentant in his heart. When Jesus said, sin no more, this is a present imperative. It stresses urgency. He is to, in the immediate future, stop a specific pattern of sin. Now, you might be scratching your head going, the guy's been laying next to this pool for 38 years. What could he possibly be doing to sin? Well, Jesus knew him. He knew his heart. He knew that his faith was not in God, but his faith was in the waters. In other words, the man was an idolater. And he said, repent. That is the theme of this sign. We'll call it necessary repentance. Necessary repentance. The Jew reading John's gospel gets the clear message that to be right with God, to be part of his future messianic kingdom, he must individually and humbly repent of his sin. He must change allegiance from idolatry to worship the one true living God. The fourth sign takes place in John 6. A multitude of people are gathered on the shore of the Sea of Galilee to hear Jesus. Passover is approaching. They're gathered because they've seen his miracles. Chapter 6, verse 2. We have a crowd now of 5,000 men. Matthew 14, verse 21 tells us that that did not include the women and children. So there's many times that many there. And they're hungry. But Jesus took a few pieces of bread, a couple of fish, and he multiplied them miraculously to feed the multitude such that there were 12 baskets of food left over. And what did the people conclude? Did they say, this is the man who can offer me eternal life? No. John six fourteen and 15, this was their conclusion. They said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What was their conclusion? Well, they knew their Bibles enough to know Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. God told Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. They said, this must be the guy. Now, in that they were right, but their application of it was wrong. 
because the coming of Jesus strongly rekindled nationalistic hope. And they even tried to force kingship on him because here's the very simple logic. Wow, if he can multiply bread like that, imagine what he could do with swords, shields, and soldiers. And we can be out from under Rome. In fact, the next day, on a different shore of the Sea of Galilee, the crowds had followed him. They went around the shoreline and he confronted them. In John 6, 26 and 27, he said, You are seeking me because you ate your fill, because I gave you food. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. They followed Jesus for his physical provision. What did they want the next morning? They wanted breakfast. Hey, the bread and fish was good. How about some scrambled eggs this morning? And they wanted him to take care of the Roman occupation. Instead, they should have been looking to him for eternal life. What's the theme of this sign? The salvation theme, we'll call this guaranteed preservation. Guaranteed preservation. They wanted to be preserved physically with bread and with Jesus overthrowing Rome. Instead, Jesus called them to believe on him for eternal life, for the guaranteed preservation of their souls in the gracious care of Messiah. As a matter of fact, he used this occasion to preach his, what some people call his bread of life sermon. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And a few verses later, he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In other words, Jesus, the bread of life, was offering guaranteed preservation of the lives of all who would believe on him. Right on the heels of the fourth sign, the feeding of the 5,000, we get the fifth sign. The fifth sign takes place in John 6, the same night that he had fed the 5,000, but the day before, the night before, preaching the Bread of Life sermon. So after feeding the 5,000, the disciples now have gone out on the lake. The wind is picking up in one of the famous sudden storms that the Sea of Galilee was known for. It's now completely dark as well. Mark's gospel in chapter 6 records that Jesus is up in the foothills praying and he sees them toiling against the wind on the sea. By the way, we should note that in the gospel of John, darkness indicates the absence of Christ. And suddenly, the disciples saw Jesus, John six nineteen, walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened. Now, this is very interesting. The Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew both record that Jesus calmed the storm immediately. And that's what we associate this story with. John not only doesn't emphasize that, he doesn't even mention it. What John does emphasize is what Jesus said. John 6, verse 20, But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Ego e me. Translated elsewhere in John, I am. Jesus isn't just saying, hey guys, it's me. Jesus is announcing himself as the same one who told Moses in Exodus 3.14, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. This is the covenant name of God expressed in the Old Testament as Yahweh, expressed in the New Testament as Ego Eimi. Listen, any Jewish reader would recognize this immediately. They would recognize that what the disciples are experiencing is a theophany, a miraculous appearance of God himself, not rowing a boat to get alongside them, but walking on the water beside them. And the Jew who knows his Old Testament would remember Job chapter 9, verse 8, that God alone tramples the waves of the sea. The Old Testament said God walks on water. I am The covenant-keeping name of God, the name which signifies that he will keep all his covenant promises to his people, that Jesus is the very God who appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua, to all the Old Testament prophets. And here are the disciples in trouble on the sea, in danger. And I am has walked out to meet them and save them. And what message does this send? That I am will always be with those who belong to him. And now you may possess, and this is the theme of the fifth sign, you may possess comforting assurance. Comforting assurance. And why can you have this comforting assurance that I am, the covenant-keeping God, will always preserve your salvation? 
Well, we'll get the answer in the sixth sign. The sixth sign in, in John 8, in the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus has preached very openly. John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And then we get to John chapter 9, and Jesus, after having preached, I am the light of the world, and in John 9, 5, again he says, I am the light of the world, he encounters a man blind from birth, who has been dark in darkness his whole life, who has never seen what? Light. Jesus makes a little mud, and he applied it to the man's eyes. He told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And this man, who has never seen anything in his life, who's never had any hope whatsoever, had faith in Christ and obeyed him, and he received his sight. Later on in chapter 9, Jesus meets with this man and he discloses his identity to him. He tells him who he is. And what did the man do after learning that Jesus was the Messiah of God? John 9, 38 says that he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. By the way, this word for worship means he fell on his face before God. The man born blind can only be healed by the divine touch of Christ and in the same way, only the light of the world can grant eternal life to those who have been in spiritual darkness. In fact, at the Feast of Tabernacles, in chapter 8, beginning in verse 36, Jesus claimed to be able to liberate men from sin, from Satan, and even from death. And so to prove it, he liberated a man from darkness and he revealed himself to be God in the flesh And the Jewish reader would remember something, very common passage, that Exodus 4.11 says that the Lord alone is the one who makes a man to see. And so what's the theme of this sixth sign? We'll call it miraculous deliverance. Miraculous deliverance. And it was the same for us. You were spiritually helpless as the man born blind. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says that you were a child of wrath that you were unable to do anything righteous and all you could do was carry out your own sinful desires. But 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of whom? Jesus Christ. And you received miraculous deliverance from your sins now to be forever in the spiritual light of Christ. And now the the seventh sign, really the climactic moment of the ministry of Jesus takes place in John 11. Jesus has received word that his friend Lazarus is sick. John's gospel gives this sign tremendous, tremendous attention. And he builds the tension and builds the drama Jesus is away from Lazarus. Jesus knows that Lazarus is sick and he's going to purposefully allow his friend to die. He's going to allow him to die so that God might be glorified in his resurrection, that Christ might demonstrate the claim he makes that he is the resurrection and he is the life. And so Lazarus will die. And four days after Lazarus has been in a tomb, the decomposition of his body has begun Long after anyone could accuse Jesus of some sort of magic trick or some sort of sleight of hand, Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus in chapter 11, verse 43, and cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the one who was dead, the one who was decomposing, walked out of the tomb. And now Jesus has proven that he has the power of life, the power of death, the power that only God himself has. And this miracle, it shows something stunning to the Jew reading John's gospel. And that is that Jesus has the power to call him from death itself. That Jesus is able to reverse the effects of the curse of sin. The Jew would know Genesis 2 so very well when God warned Adam that the day that you disobey me, Sin and death will come into the world. But what he sees now is that Jesus can annul the curse. Jesus can repeal the curse. Jesus can reverse the curse. And how will he do this? Jesus will repeal the curse by his own coming death to pay the penalty of my sin and by his own coming resurrection to lead the way to glory for all who would believe on him. And so what's the theme for the seventh sign? We'll simply call it eternal life eternal life 
And this proves, as Ephesians 2.5 says, that even while we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been what? Saved. And so with these seven signs, John has taught through the miracles of Jesus that to enter the kingdom of God, the salvation themes are you must receive the new birth. You must come by demonstrated faith. You must humble yourself with necessary repentance and you will receive guaranteed preservation. You will receive comforting assurance of your salvation from sin. You will receive miraculous deliverance from your spiritual blindness which once bound you and now you have eternal life. Do you see why we recommend that unbelievers read the Gospel of John? But remember that we said that for the faithful Jew, the promises of God are tied to their future life on earth, to an earthly messianic kingdom. They didn't separate, as we so often do, the spiritual provision of God from the physical, the material, the earthly provision of God. And we said that the Old Testament gives these future messianic hopes and promises that they hope for celebrated union with God, global worship of Messiah, eternal rest from sin, lavish provision from God, complete protection by God, spiritual unity with all and face-to-face fellowship with Messiah. Listen, the Jew reading and comprehending these seven signs of Jesus Christ are not only seeing the soteriological salvation themes that are inherent in each one, the images and the pictures from the old testament are jumping out of the gospel of john because they're seeing their future messianic kingdom here the jew reading john's gospel sees celebrated union with god the wedding at cana in which jesus provides abundant wine isaiah 54 says that the coming messianic kingdom is like god reunited with israel where at a wedding Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 6, For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. If you read Isaiah 62, 1 through 5, you would see that Israel will be called, quote, a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and that their reunion will be as a glorious wedding. What about the wine? Wine is frequently mentioned in the Old Testament as a promise of future blessing and safety and satisfaction and joy and celebration and reunion in the coming messianic kingdom. In the coming kingdom, Isaiah 25, 6 promises that on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Food, wine, food, wine. You kind of get the idea of a banquet. And most famously, Amos 9, 13 and 14, which, by the way, Amos 9, 13 and 14 is the key that helps you unlock the entire Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. What, what does this mean? It means that the guys who are planting the seed say, move out of the way because they're growing so fast. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Celebrated union with God. The Jew reading Gospel of John would see the global worship of Messiah. The global worship of Messiah, the official who had faith in Christ and his son was healed. This official was a Gentile and he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 2 beginning in verse 2 tells us of the coming messianic kingdom. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that is Jerusalem, shall be established as the highest of all the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Listen to this. And all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Isaiah 42, verse 6, the Jew reading the Gospel of John when he sees a Gentile coming to faith in Christ would 
Remember Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The purpose of Israel was not to be an enclosed nation. The purpose of Israel was to make God big in the world. The coming kingdom of Christ doesn't eradicate Israel. That's ridiculous. Israel is to serve as a beacon, as the capital of a diverse people made up of both Jew and Gentile, ruled by a king who is a Jew. The Jew reading the Gospel of John would see eternal rest from sin. Eternal rest from sin. Jesus healed the invalid, and he did it on purpose on the Sabbath. It's not like Jesus looked at his calendar and said, Oops, oh, this is Sabbath day. He didn't realize that. No, this was on purpose. He gave the invalid relief from the effects of sin appropriately on the day set aside for what? For relief, for rest. The Jew reading this and comprehending the implications would get this very quickly. Because here's the logic. Sabbath was a weekly feast, a weekly rest. The Sabbath principles carried over into Israel's observance of the Sabbath years of Jubilee in Leviticus 25 and in the book of Isaiah, the Sabbath year of Jubilee became associated, you ready for this, with the eternal, sinless rest of the future age. All of Isaiah 58 is about the promised future Sabbath rest of God's people. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, which by the way, Jesus applied to himself, proclaims the ultimate Sabbath year of Jubilee as being when Christ returns to restore his people. By the way, according to Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 66, 23, Ezekiel 46, 1, someday Sabbath will be reinstituted as a celebration of the rest from sin which God has provided in Christ. And this time it will be reinstituted properly as a gift from God for mankind, not as a burden. In another book appealing to Jews to believe on the Lord Jesus, the New Testament book of Hebrews, the writer says in Hebrews 4, 9 and 10, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What does this mean? To enter the Sabbath rest of God means that in Christ I have rested. I have stopped trying to please God. I have stopped trying to be righteous enough for God. I have stopped trying to be holy enough for God. I have stopped trying to be good enough for God because I can't. Instead, I have received the free forgiveness from Christ, and I have rested in what He has provided. And by the way, the rest from sin will also mean rest from the effects of sin. None of you have ever lived a day of your life without the effects of sin being on you. You have no idea what it's like. But in the coming kingdom, here's what the Jew hoped for. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Ostensibly, in the coming kingdom, you may see Johnny Erickson Tata sprinting by you all of a sudden. A world without disease, a world without infirmity, a world without pain, a world without tears. The Jew reading the Gospel of John would see the lavish provision of God. The lavish provision of God. Jesus providing miraculous bread for thousands of people. And he preached that he is the bread of life. Now what's the Jew going to immediately think of? God told Israel in Deuteronomy 18 that he would send a prophet like Moses. They must listen to him. What happened in the time of Moses? God sent what from heaven? Bread. Manna. And he provided endlessly for his people. And as the Jew is reading in John chapter 6, this sign of Jesus just endlessly creating bread and giving it out to tens of thousands of people, there's only one other time that's happened. And that's right before God brought people into the promised land. And by the way, this is the sort of lavish provision in the Old Testament that people should be looking for when Messiah is reigning among them. Countless Jews have starved to death. Countless Jews have died of their poverty because of the oppression of, their, of peoples around them. But Micah 7 verse 15 says in the coming kingdom, I will show them marvelous things 
Micah 4 verse 4 says that in this day they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree that Messiah will make lavish, abundant provision for his people. And by the way, on one occasion, Jesus fed 5,000 Jews. On another occasion, he fed 4,000 Gentiles just to make certain that we know that he is the provider of abundant and lavish provision for peoples of all tribes, peoples, tongues, and nations. The Jew reading John would see complete protection by God. Complete protection by God. And this one would be obvious. Jesus walking on water to protect his disciples. Any Jew reading about water and miraculous protection will be immediately reminded of another time that God miraculously protected his people in water when God led his people through the Red Sea. A time when God protected them, destroyed Israel's enemy, Egypt, in the process. And by the way, you remember how God introduced himself to Moses who is about to lead God's people out of Egypt, tell the people that I am has sent you. It was the same way that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples, that he was about to rescue. It is I, ego me, I am has come. And the Jewish reader is stunned to see that Jesus is the great I am. He is the one who led his people through the Red Sea. He is the covenant-keeping God who will always protect his own for his own eternal purposes and promises. The Jew reading John's gospel would see spiritual unity with all. Jesus heals a man born blind as the light of the world. Blindness in the Old Testament was associated with spiritual darkness and captivity to sin. But Messiah would come. Isaiah 42, 7 and 8 says, To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And when all who have believed are living in the future messianic kingdom with Christ on earth someday, Isaiah 29, 18 says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom the darkness of the eyes of the blind shall see. In fact... There's a coming day when there will be no more spiritual blindness. You ever tried to explain the gospel to someone and you may as well be trying to explain quantum physics to a three-year-old because they just don't get it. Their eyes glaze over or they get angry or they get upset or they get arrogant or they avoid you because they don't get it. They're spiritually blind. But someday, Jeremiah 31, 34 says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Did you catch that? Someday evangelism will be out of date. That all of your neighbors, all that you know, everyone will all know Christ. Total spiritual unity worldwide. We have trouble with spiritual unity room-wide. And the Jew reading the Gospel of John, when he comes to John 11 and Jesus raising Lazarus, he's going to see the face-to-face fellowship with Messiah that is made possible. Face-to-face fellowship. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, by the way, when Jesus raises himself from the dead, John 10, 17 says Jesus would raise himself This confirms to the Jew reading John's gospel that the greatest of all the future kingdom hopes lie in Christ and Christ alone. That greatest of all hopes is to receive eternal life in resurrection after death, not some sort of ethereal ghost-like existence, but a, a resurrection body to live in fellowship with Messiah on the earth in perfected, everlasting, glorified bodies, the way God meant for you to be originally. And how familiar they would be with Psalm 16. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to the grave. That's our, that's our deepest fear, that the moment before our death, God, will you abandon me? This says, no, he won't. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You made known to me the path of life in your presence, face to face. There is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The Jew reading of the resurrection of Lazarus then the resurrection of Christ would remember Daniel 12, verse 2. It promises that the faithful who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake 
to everlasting life. And they would certainly remember perhaps the greatest resurrection passage in all of the Old Testament. Job 19, 25, and 26, this great future hope. When Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That is packed. Did you catch all that? The Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is on the earth. And after Job has died, he will, in a brand new glorified body, see the Redeemer, Messiah, whom he calls God. Wow. What does the Jew see when he reads John? He sees celebrated union with God, global worship of Messiah, eternal rest from sin, lavish provision from God, complete protection by God, spiritual unity with God, with all, and face-to-face fellowship with Messiah. And it all happens in Christ. All of it. Now, what does this have to do with loving your church for your worthy master? Well, very simply, because your church is made up of those with whom you will experience everything I just described. These are them. You will experience what Revelation 19 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb of God, who is our Master, our Lord, our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, could you be any clearer? This inspired text of the Gospel of John screams the Gospel into hearts, opens the eyes of the blind, unstops the ears of the deaf, makes the lame to walk. Lord, I pray for any hearing this. I pray for anyone, either seated in this room or watching online, who has not bent the knee to the only hope of entering into the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. I pray that this would be the day that they would receive the new birth and they would come by faith and they would repent. I pray, Lord, that this would be the day. I pray for all who already know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that they would be comforted by the fact that you have made yourself so very plain in the person of Jesus Christ and that you have made your promises abundant about the future, not only heavenly, but on the new earth, the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, all of our heavenly hope, and it all rests in Christ. I would pray for those who are very young, who cannot picture the day of their death. I would pray you would give them a sense of their own mortality and that they would look to Christ. I pray for those of middle age who still might think that they have many years left and yet they don't know your sovereign plan. I pray they would not leave this life without Christ. And I pray for those nearing the end of their journey, if they do not know you, oh Lord, let them even now come to Christ. Let them run to the cross. Let them repent now with urgency. And should they do, if they do know you, Lord, let them walk those last miles with dignity and faith and trust and joy, knowing that very soon we will all be reunited, all who have trusted Christ in the glorious messianic kingdom promised to both Jew and Gentile, one people in Christ. We thank you and we praise you in his name. Amen.